Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Paddock Chat, a West Midlands Group original podcast created to keep local growers in the loop without having to leave the paddock. My name is Erin O'Brien and I'm the Beef Industry Development Officer at the West Midlands Group. In this episode, I spoke with Peter Hutton and Zoe Dermick from the University of Western Australia about the Carbon Neutral by 2030 project. This project is part of the BeefLinks program, which includes the West Midlands Group's backgrounding project as well as a range of others. This program aims to drive an integrated and complementary R&D program for northern and southern production systems across WA. The information provided in this podcast is general in nature and may not be wholly appropriate for your purposes or situation. We recommend that you seek appropriate professional advice before implementing actions based on the information provided in this podcast. This conversation was recorded in December 2021. Today I'm here with Zoe and Pete. Could you please introduce yourselves? Okay, so I'm Zoe Dorovic. I'm a research professor at the University of Western Australia, working with sheep, cattle, whatever comes our way. <laughs> and my name's Peter Hutton. I'm a research fellow with UWA, working on the Beef Links project. Wonderful. Thank you both for joining me today. Great. Okay, so can I start with, could you just tell me a little bit more about yourselves, as well as kind of how you came into your roles at UWA? Well, I was actually originally a dairy farmer from the East Coast, a little place, country town called Berry on the south coast of New South Wales. So I was dairy farming away happily there and I left, ended up leaving the farm in 1998. Cut a long story short, ended up in my mid-30s doing an undergrad degree at UWA and got really interested in the animal science. But I think the light bulb moment for me was as a dairy farmer Going, I think it was a discussion group somewhere along the way where um, it was pointed out to us that there was this, these bugs living inside the cow that actually ate all the food that the cow ate. And to me, that was a revelation. I thought, what the hell is that all about? So when I, when I went through university, then that sort of primed me for wanting to do that, go down that path and find out more about the room and how it functions and how you can manipulate it to end up with different end products. So I ended up staying at UWA for about eight years or so, undergrad and postgrad stuff. And then going over to New Zealand, lecturing at the Massey Uni in dairy production there. I was with Western Dairy for a few years and I've been on and off back to UWA, but now I'm back on the Beef Links project and loving it. Do a few lectures at, at Murdoch as well? Oh yeah, so doing <laughs> uh, lecturing into the animals animals and vets over there in dairy production. I didn't realise you did an undergrad later. 34 but... I think I was when I started. As a mature age student, you're just so inquisitive. It was a hard thing though to try and pick up because I hadn't been to school for 20 years or something, trying to pick up those core units, maths, science, all that sort of stuff. It was a good challenge, yeah. Okay, so I'm, um, as you can say by my accent, I'm import from overseas. I escaped war times in my country back in Europe, so I came here with my vet degree, so I'm a vet by trade. I wanted to continue in research, so I did my PhD on pigs, swine dysentery and I was still working with sick animals when I start getting pulled into agriculture there's not enough people that are interested in working with animals in large animals and now this is a call for everyone out there once we retire we need someone (laughs) to replace us I always make jokes you know the whole animal science at least in WA relies on us imports all things together we need people from here but anyway ended up working with healthy animals trying to improve productivity reduce environmental impact my turning point as Pete was saying was when I was actually working on that Murdoch project in my PhD when we actually saw animals vent infectious diseases so bacterial diseases just by manipulating animal diet we were 
feeding some cooked rice to our pigs and infecting them and they, they turned out to be okay, not, not getting catching the disease. So that's uh, sparked my interest in manipulating animal diet and trying to solve problems and mysteries in sheep and cattle production here. And then methane came on board in early 2000. That's when I joined UWA and Professor Berger and the group and we start some early work. It was PhD student back in the days, but we work ever since for almost 20 years now. Oh, yeah. um, she formed a the... nice little group with common interests oh, and wow. fed yes. off each other to develop, you know, the, looking at the lab stuff earlier on, yeah. just developing those protocols came out of that, yeah. that yeah. early group, research group. Yeah. Yeah. So we get collaborations and links throughout, not just Australia, like globally. My initial research was on lactic acidosis and using antimicrobials that would target those bugs in the gut that produce lactic acid yeah. and so that's where the like the name we brought the native plants in on that and we found that they're really potent a lot of them yeah. are really potent antimicrobials but selective on certain bugs and so that's when we started to develop all yeah. these protocols yeah. for testing the different plants and wow. what brought us together is that interest and passion to you know use alternatives to antibiotics so move away from in-feed antibiotics and chemicals in animal production and use that research on australian native plants so we always now say well we have similar projects to these beeflings but that was in sheep which was enriched in future farm industries projects and we always say we fixed south we fixed sheep now it's it's turn to look up and try to fix north so were you before your time with that methane or the methane discussion because i feel like that's only been on kind of the front of people's minds recently recently mm, but it's not quite yeah true. so mm. we have been working and i'm ashamed to admit but we have been working on other methodologies back in early 2000 uh, there was a big project at CSRO, which I was my first postdoc, was oh. around methane vaccine project. So we were trying to immunize our animals. So we were developing a vaccine for methane. It didn't end up being successful. So a lot of trouble. With yeah, I think still infecting. manipulating animal diet, just just guiding them and going along with their normal physiology would be the way to go. Oh. And that's what yeah. we our group is mm. working on. So interesting because I came out of uni. I didn't really have any idea what I wanted to do, but I thought the nutrition side of things is just so vast. Mm. There's so much work to be done in it. I thought that was really interesting. And it's really interesting when you look at human stuff going down that microbial path now, looking at ways that we can manipulate the gut. It's really interesting, but, you know, there's a lot of people saying that they understand what's going on when really... I mean, the rooming group's been doing it for years and we years, have, and yeah. it's really difficult. <laughs> there are some things that we have invested, we, you know, for methane mitigation, we start looking at Australian native plants and compounds, and one of the, we call it Pete's plant, because he <laughs> discovered that it was quite potent in, in his assay, so we followed up on methane, we found that it's quite potent in methane as well, and then it trickled actually now into human medicine, so they're using some of those extracts and finding them effective against anti antibiotic resistant bugs the hot in hospital infection it's no accident that australian plants are pretty high in these secondary compounds that have these effects because it's a it's a as we know wa is quite a harsh environment so they're limited for nutrient they're limited for water in a lot of a lot of places and so they put energy into developing these compounds to stop animals eating them so they might be unpalatable or insect attack so the insects don't like them and just by sheer chance, testing them in the lab, we found that they've got this selective inhibition on certain mm. bugs. How it all started is that there was a huge project 
back in Europe, back in early 2000s again. Europe posed the ban on in feed antibiotics yes, in 2006. Yeah. Europe was getting ready to, you know, what else can we do? Mitigate um, methane to reduce diseases and disorders and whatnot. So they looked at about 500 plants in Europe and they only found, I think it was eight that were eight active against methane. Then we start looking in Australia, in our backyard, we just pick random hundred native plants that could be used as a forage. So we're piggybacking on something else, but you know, a hundred forage shrubs. Out of those hundred, 30 were already highly potent. So we beat yeah. Europe. <laughs> like it was just amazing. Wow. And so it's all flowed from those findings. And that brings us to our CN30. Yes, so could you tell me a little bit about that project? There's a not a lot of knowledge on what the feed base is in the northern rangelands of Australia. I don't mean to say that the managers are not, haven't been doing their job, but it's, there hasn't been a lot of research done into what the actual feed base is. And it's really difficult because it's very diverse. It's a lot more complicated than a monoculture system, say in the dairy industry where they're all grazing just ryegrass. It's much more complicated than that. So we're trying to put some, some data together and put some numbers on what feed base actually is. The goals of the CN30 project are to quantify the diversity of the antimethanogenic properties of pea species and also the productivity, so the nutritive value of those. By nutritive value we mean, say, a feed test, getting it done and seeing how much crude protein, ME, all that sort of stuff, but also the fermentability in our lab assay to see how it actually ferments. And then also, are there plants in the northern rangelands that are also present in the southern rangelands that you could actually have as a link between the north and the south to aid in backgrounding systems so that we don't have that lag in production when they move to a new property. If they can recognise plants in the north and the south, can we use that to reduce some of that lag? And then the final part is just extending that, coming up with guidelines, presenting our findings to the industry so that people can actually use them on farm. And the name CN2030, maybe people are aware or not aware, there was a commitment that red meat industry will become carbon neutral by 2030. The clock is ticking. We are finding some really interesting and exciting plant species that are grazed up in northern rangelands, but that are also highly anti-methanogenic. They can reduce methane produced by animals that are Mm. Yeah, so the greenhouse gas inventory in Australia, it says it's calculated that a cow will produce 165 grams of methane a day. And that's just a standard cow, but they haven't specified what that cow is eating. Yeah. And it may well be that those stock in the northern rangelands, given that there's a big range of plants and we've found a lot that have got anti-methanogenic compounds in them, they might not actually already be producing that much. They might be mm. producing much less than that. So this work goes towards redefining how much meat yeah, is coming so, in. So you, topical. Yeah. yeah. Probably asking how, how does it all work? I keep mentioning anti-methanogenic and it's quite bombastic term. Mm. So we have to just step back and say that methane is produced by bugs in the rumen. They're called archaea. They're very primitive microbes. They're even saying we are more related to, to bacteria than this archaea. But, you know, under the microscope, they look pretty much like bacteria. But they have a very primitive system 
of surviving, of energy producing. So they used hydrogen that is produced in the gut during fermentation. So they used that hydrogen and carbon dioxide and they combine it and that's where the methane is coming from. So if we can find chemicals in those plants, in plant compounds, as Pete was saying, that aren't microbial, but they're targeting those specific bugs in sheep or cattle rumen. If we can find those that are specifically targeting those ones, then we can reduce overall methane that animal produces. But just to clarify that, that everybody knows from now on that we're talking about burps, right? So that <laughs> methane yeah, yeah. is coming out the front end. We're talking about four gut fermenters, the methane's burped out, or 95% of it is burped out. A little bit comes out the back end, but most of it yeah. is burps. And it doesn't smell at all. No smell. <laughs> The problem with methane in the atmosphere as a greenhouse gas is that it's about 28 times more potent than CO2. The good news is that it's only got a short lifespan in the atmosphere. So CO2 is in the atmosphere for about 100 years, whereas methane's only there for about 12 years, which presents a really good opportunity. Any abatement that we can make now will actually see real effects in 12 years' time, whereas you won't see that as quickly with CO2 reduction. So when did this project as it is, come up and start? So there was a bit of, you know, back and forth delays, COVID and whatnot, but we officially started mid last year because of restrictions and we couldn't quite travel. And then when restrictions opened, we could travel, but there was all soggy and wet in the north where we are collecting plants. So we had to wait until April this year, I think was our first travel and Mm. collection. Yeah. So this year was quite busy for Pete and I. It was catching up for the work that commenced last year as well as this year. And just to illustrate how much we traveled, I joined Qantas Frequent Flyer beginning of this year (laughs) and I'm now Silver member. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. I just earned my Silver membership in just a couple of months. So yeah, it is. It was quite challenging, but we managed to push through, just two mm. of us. But it was really, really eye-opening. It's great. We've had a great time because we've had that bumper season up north. Like it really, rain just kept going, and so the diversity and yeah. plant life has just been incredible. Yeah, we have we have seen some amazing plants. Normally they don't come out. But yeah, we were right. quite lucky this year that they actually did come out and we managed to collect them. Mm. I couldn't believe, I think I'm lucky as well because this was my first year of travelling up there and it just has been beautiful. Yeah. It's yeah. been an amazing yeah. Beautiful country when there's, everything's out. And so what have you found so far? results This isn't the first time this sort of work has been done. There was a previous project called Enrich where they're focusing on plants in the southern end of Australia. And so they found, this is Zoe and her team, that I wasn't part of that work, but they found a lot of diversity in the amount of methane that these plants were producing. And we found exactly the same thing in the northern rangelands. So yeah. some produce a lot of methane and then some almost stop they, yeah, wow. there are some that are quite impressive. They produce, you know, 10 times less methane than, for example, your lucerne. So that is quite... Um, High in methane. Yeah, 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 very, very low methane production. So, there is a, so we're still investigating that. We're still looking into those plants and following up whether they can be... So some of them are not necessarily great plants that are grazed, but collected them because we know background of some other species in that genus so we were targeting so there's lots of for example aromophila species that we know contain lots of plant secondary compounds they came as very impressive in enrich project 
you know, found antibacterial properties as well. So we start looking at those ones. And they're not too bad nutritionally either. Yeah, yeah. that's the next thing I was going to yeah. ask. But whether yeah. they form part of the feed base, it's we, difficult to say. Yeah. A lot of station managers say that they don't. We know that they are grazed in some part, but we don't know which species do, which yeah. are and which aren't. And oh, okay. also what is interesting, so we are still compiling mm. data and information and it will be published and made, made available yeah. through extension. However, there are some interesting things as we were traveling along. We we were going with herbarium books and printouts because we didn't know even how these plants look like that we were chasing. Yeah, okay. So that was a challenge. So sometimes we would have station managers coming with us and pointing us in the right direction. Sometimes it was just Pete and I in the wild and uh, <laughs> with the book and, and trying to, and I hadn't tried to look for that particular one. There is a book that we call a Bible of rangeland written by our famous botanist. So that was quite useful. In that book, Thank it you, says, Reggie Mitchell. Oh yes, it should be noted. So we were in the car and the book says a particular plant, false mimosa, is not grazed because it has little spikes so cattle will not graze it and we were standing there we were we saw the, the plant and we saw cattle gorging on it oh, yeah. <laughs> we just yeah. crossed that yeah. one off so so he's now saying he's rewriting this new edition re-looking at all this information that yeah. they gathered before you can imagine that because it is such a vast system there's so much work that goes into working out yeah. what they're it's, eating it's, when it's, what time yeah. of year so it is um still a one big black box or maybe gray box there is still lots of puzzle pieces that need to be put together what do they eat how much they eat or what drives them to eat what they eat and can we do better which yeah. maybe that flows into that mm. diet idea so I um, yeah i was just my next question yeah. was how does it fit in with the other beef links projects. Yeah. So within the CN2030 project is a project called Diet ID and that is looking at trying to find better what is actually in the, the animal's diet. So what we're doing there is property called Weibo out in the southern goldfields. We're looking at tagging cattle, putting GPS serious ear tags in their ears and so we can track where they go, take fecal samples for that from those animals, as well as plant samples representing plants in the area. Where are the samples sent to? They're just sent off to a lab in France, France yeah. to do something called environmental DNA barcoding. And so they can look at little signatures from all the different plants in the fecal material and work out what is actually in the animal's diet. And then added to that is a walkover weighing system, so an automatic weighing system. So we can look at the animals, we can track where they've been going, we know what they've been eating, and then we can see the effect of that on live weight gain. And then we can work out what are the most effective plants in the diet. And so you can see how that really links in with what we're doing in the CN2030 project. Yeah, it's such amazing that like this new technologies even start teaching that now this year as of this year the smart farming uh, technologies in in context of clean green and ethical animal production but we just felt obliged that we need to now start teaching our Mm. young generations how these you know smart technologies uh, mobile technologies and and clouds not just you know to talk to each other on (laughs) instagrams and facebooks and share the gossip but actually to you know to check our cattle and find Mm. better ways of managing our that's a really good point because i think if you know it's already moving so quickly. Who knows what it will be like when those people are coming out in a few years in the industry. 
I think that's a really, really good yeah, idea. The new generation know. will really know how to apply, yeah. how to apply this technology. So we, we already talked about GPS tracking of the animals' smart weighing system, so they walk over weighing scales. Also applying molecular profiling, so when we collect their faces, we can know what, what they have been eating, just simply looking at their faces. Yeah, <laughs> right. Mm. Yeah. And then the final part, or another part to that, is the um, virtual fencing that you might want to just Yeah, yeah, quickly. so part of this you know, smart management is we can track animals, but can we also use these smart technologies to contain the animals? And this is something quite new that it is called virtual fencing, which is containing animals without the need of physical fence. So the way it works, animal wears, again, I'm using smart too much, but it is called a smart collar that is fitted with GPS location device. But also it has a device that delivers various signals. So we have audio signals and electric signals. So it actually modifies animal behavior, but giving it a warning. So it's almost like when you're trying to park these new cars, if you're approaching a fence or a, a wall in with a car, your car will start emitting signals and saying beep, 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 beep. Do not go there. If you keep going there, you'll crash into the wall. Well, these cows will not crash into the fence, but they will receive a second signal, which is a low voltage electric signal, which then zaps, we call it zap. So first they will receive that warning audio signal, and then if they keep going, they'll get zapped. And then during they turn around and walk away. So what we have found, we have conducted a couple of experiments in rangelands. First, we start with 20 cattle. Now we scale up to 100. Next year, it will be 500. But what we have found, to our surprise, they learn quite quickly. In two or three days, they already learn not to get zapped. And over 14 days, this is preliminary still, but over 10, 10 to 14 days, they learn to not even get that audio signal. So they are quite comfortable staying within that virtual fencing without even challenging. Also, what was interesting, we have a video that we showed that you might not necessarily have to put colors on every animal. We we think, oh, well, there is a cost related to that. But what we have seen is that there is some sort of herd behavior. One animal got zapped and then the whole herd ran after it, turns around and yeah. walks, yeah, follows that. Good. Yeah, it follows yeah, that animal. So maybe in the future you might be able just to color the leaders or, or but that's further down the track. Obvious advantages, you will not have to put your physical fences. You don't have to spend time going and fixing the fences when they break. You will be able to guide animals to healthier, better pastures, mm. let the other pastures regenerate, keep animals away from roads, prevent accidents, both for animals and humans, mm. off the infrastructure. So, it being a really nice link with the CN30. Like the diet, like the feed base works. So once we know what that the key species are in the feed base, you can manage it through virtual fencing. You can manage the livestock through that landscape so that we look after that those plants. Yeah, mm. it does all fit together really nicely. Mm. And I paint a really good picture of just more environmental friendly. Mm. Also, on the animal welfare and health, it does tell you where your animal is. You can track it down where it is. You can see if it's not moving. You can go down and check it. Also, you will know your animals. You can actually check it down if it gets stolen, which apparently happens quite a lot. (laughs) 
people do steal each other animals yeah. and and you can see if if it if it's on the wrong side of the fence you can yeah. find it and claim it back how with the data that we're getting from this benefit the producer from the cn30 yeah right. from the cn30 so i think understanding the feed base is really important so i always think of intensive systems such as in the dairy industry those farmers always know what their feed base is they know exactly what's going down the cow's throat they know what the energy requirements of the animal are if those extensive grazing systems can go down a similar path and understand what the feed base is they can manage it a lot better to improve growth rates, reduce the carbon. Reduce supplementation. They know what also drives the tail end, why they're low performance and why they're high performance. So that your diet ID, you'll know the yeah. good ones, what they were eating. So maybe that's where you should be focusing or planting more of. And then again, with your virtual fencing, we mentioned you can you can keep your flock together and contained and you know exactly where they are and what they're doing. When we present what we're doing, present it to a group of pastoralists and they're immediately thinking of 10 different things you could do with yeah, that. Yeah, we are quite excited. There are some really good thinking and, and proactive pastoralists went out there we thought well, there will be a brick wall. People will not listen. People will not be keen to change. But there is enough people that uh, are keen to, to make the change and make the difference and they're keen to find out more. So... You know, obviously the first question is, what's the cost? How much? <laughs> so again, we're coming back to methane. Methane was always talk about environmental pollutant. There is impact of livestock, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. But we were in methane business long before methane became environmental issue. Methane is actually your loss of money. 10 to 15% of feed that goes in the animal is yeah. wasted. If you can capture that, have better productivity, you'll have animals that are cheaper to run, you'll have more profit. So don't look at it as just, oh, it's another, you know, carbon scheme. Yeah, it is, it's, it's money back in your pocket if you can, if you can reduce that methane. And also if you can guide your animals to healthier pastures, to better and more nutritious, you know exactly what to feed them and what is good on your property. And it could vary from property to property, from paddock to paddock. But once you have that knowledge, you can make your decision how you want to manage that. Is there any recommended resources for people that want to find it's, out some more? mla.com.au forward slash beeflink. Yeah, go search beeflinks. There's a lot of on the website. There is, I think, some videos. ABC just recently had some interesting episodes about this and there will be more to come i guess yeah there's a really good landline episode on the virtual fencing have you seen that one yeah Yeah. very uh very (laughs) interesting yeah and listen to these podcasts (laughs) (laughs) so yeah thank you again uh pete and zoe for coming on today thank you very much great to talk to you (laughs) erin thank you thank you that brings us to the end of this episode thanks to pete and zoe for being so generous with their time and knowledge i hope you enjoyed it The best way to receive our updates and stay in the loop with the latest in local research and results is by becoming a West Midlands Group member. Our members are an essential part of why we do what we do and we pride ourselves on ensuring members like you receive relevant, innovative information. You'll save hours of your valuable time with easy access to the most relevant and up-to-date information you really need. Our membership gets you early access to our workshops, free or discounted entry for up to three farm business members to our major events, 
exclusive access to our member-only publications like our technical newsletter, The West Midlands Group Quarterly. For more info, visit our website where you can sign up anytime. I'd like to thank our sponsors and members, without whom this would not be possible. See you next time for some more Paddock Chat. Local knowledge from a paddock near you.